We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 41, and it is a longer chapter, so if you do need to sit, I want you to feel free to do so, but if you can, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 41. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then, behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream, and one night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. 
The dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the lands. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, the question of good and evil is one that has haunted humanity since Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the difference? How how can we know? How can we tell what is good and, and what is evil? The problem of evil is the question of how we reconcile the existence of evil, of suffering in the world, with an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent God. In other words, if God knows all things, he's omniscient, 
and is altogether good, he's omnibenevolent, and he is all-powerful, omnipotent, then why doesn't he simply stop evil before it happens? And since evil does happen, doesn't that mean that God is either not all-powerful, he couldn't stop it, or that he's not altogether good because he chose not to stop it, or that he is not all-knowing. He didn't see the evil coming in time to do anything about it. Now, one of the problems for those who pose this sort of a question as a supposed proof against the existence of God, against Christianity, is that they still have to answer the question. Now, it becomes a little different in their case. The question they have to answer is more basic. How do you know what is good and what is evil? How do you define it? The question that we ought to ask in response to these sorts of people is, by what standard? By what standard can you judge something to be good or evil? If you reject the idea of God, what is your standard? And when you begin to look for an answer to that question, the philosophies of this world begin to come up empty. George Orwell, the author of uh, the famed classics 1984 and Animal Farm, he wrote a newspaper article in March of 1944 uh, during the wartime period in, in which he noted that with the decline of the Christian religion and culture had gone with it the belief in a resurrection, in the afterlife, in any idea of accountability to God after this life has ended. This is a situation that he applauded. He said in this article he did not want those things to come back into our collective system of belief. But he went on to say that in the absence of Christianity, mankind, quote, is not likely to salvage civilization unless he can evolve a system of good and evil which is independent of heaven and hell. And so our question is, by what standard would you develop this system of good and evil? And if we look further back in history, before Orwell, the famed German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said in the late 19th century, there is an old illusion. It is called good and evil. So he saw good and evil simply as an illusion, a trick that our collective consciousness has played on mankind. And this is not really a new idea. The ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus wrote in the 5th century B.C. saying good and evil are the same thing. Well, if you can bring yourself to believe that, then you don't have to answer the question of evil. But most thinking people will acknowledge that some things are good and some things are not. It's very difficult to convince yourself or anyone else that starving children is indifferent or much less to convince them that starving children is exactly the same thing as happily fed children. We intuitively know that the one is evil and the other is good. They're not the same thing. 
Now, I'm using evil in the broadest sense of the term here to mean adversity, calamity, disaster, and wickedness perpetrated by mankind. In Isaiah 58, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, the the word peace here is the word shalom that we're familiar with. It means completeness, wholeness, or prosperity. It means to lack nothing. So evil in this verse is the opposite of shalom. It's the absence of shalom in the same way that darkness is the absence of light. It's the absence of wholeness, of goodness. This verse does not mean that God is the author of sin or wickedness, but rather that everything that happens in the world, shalom or unshalom, good or evil, happens according to the providential will of God. If you were here this morning in CLA, this is the second course through this material this morning. We know that all things work together for good according to the will of God, even those things that to us, to our eyes, appear to be evil. Somehow it all works together for good. He is God. And so he is the standard by which we are to judge good and evil. And and so when Joseph's brother sold him as a slave into Egypt, that was objectively evil on their part. And yet Joseph tells his brothers that God meant it for good. God didn't force them to do evil against their will, but neither did he simply respond to their evil and, and turn it to good. Rather, according to the wisdom and providence of God, they were allowed to pursue the evil of their own hearts because it served the good purpose of God. Or to return to my example of a moment ago, a famine that causes people, children even, to starve is not what we would call a good thing. But if it does happen... It happens according to God's will and for his purposes, which are always good because he is God. Now, if we return again to the philosophies of this world and how they deal with the question of good and evil, here's another one for you. This one comes from a a current day philosopher and teacher who says, each of us has a vision of good and evil. We have to encourage people to move toward what they think is good. Everyone has his own idea of good and evil and must choose to follow the good and fight evil as he conceives them. That would be enough to make the world a better place. But my question is, if everyone has their own idea of good and evil, what happens when people don't agree? What if competing ideas are both pursued and come into conflict with one another? How is that going to make the world a better place? And so the question arises of when and how are we to judge between these competing opinions on the issue of good and evil? You want to take a guess at where that quote comes from? Pope Francis, the current pope of the Roman Catholic Church, said that the standard for judging good and evil is determined by the individual. On that basis, there can be no justice. There can be no crime. 
How can you prosecute something or hold something to be a crime if the standard for good and evil is up to the individual? The individual who committed that crime might think it was a good. There has to be a standard, and there is a standard, and it comes from God. The problem is that ever since the garden, man has been trying to determine and establish that standard for himself apart from God. One tree in the garden that Adam was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he believed the lie that Satan told that if he would disobey God in this one thing, if he would eat from this tree, he could be like God, knowing good and evil. He wouldn't need God any longer to tell him what was good. He could determine it for himself. But instead of gaining that freedom, Adam found himself enslaved to sin. He found his judgment clouded by this lie. Before he had sinned, he could simply trust God to tell him what was good. But now, humanity struggles to know the difference between good and evil. And what I want us to see this morning in our text in Genesis 41 is that the Egyptians couldn't discern the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams because their judgment was clouded. But Joseph could discern good from evil. He could interpret the dreams because he had a wisdom that came from God. The wisdom to discern between good and evil is found in God alone. Last week, if you'll remember, we highlighted six components of discernment that Jacob practiced, and they were these. One, he had a clean conscience. Two, he had faith in God. Three, he was humble. Four, he had a knowledge of God and of his times. Five, he had the courage to act. And six, he was devoted to the truth. Now, those six can be simplified down to three. The first two are really about faith, the second two about wisdom, and the last two about courage. And we'll see these same three principles at work here in chapter 41. So let's begin with Joseph's faith during these events. Joseph has been a slave in Egypt now for 13 years. The last several years he has spent as a prisoner Two years before the events of chapter 41, he had interpreted the dreams for Pharaoh's officers, and then he was forgotten, left in prison. And now suddenly he's brought out of the prison, he shaves, he puts on clean clothes, and he's brought before Pharaoh, king of the most powerful empire on earth. Pharaoh had had two dreams that he felt were significant And all the wise men in the land of Egypt had come up empty trying to interpret these dreams. And so Joseph is brought out of the prison and he's put on the spot. In verse 15, it says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. Well, now there's a little bit of pressure right there. All the wise men in Egypt can't figure this out. Let's get this guy out of prison, this young man. Put him on the spot. Now you interpret this for us. Joseph responds in verse 16. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So first he acknowledges that any wisdom that that he has, he can interpret a dream with, comes from God. It's not 
something he owns on his own. But then he confidently states that God will provide an interpretation and that it will be an answer of peace or an answer of shalom. This is to say God will provide an interpretation of the dream and that interpretation will be shalom, it will be wholeness, it will be profitable answer, one that's trustworthy and beneficial to the hearer. And the answer, as we know, contains both good and bad. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. But what's noteworthy is Joseph's confidence that whatever answer God would give would be worth hearing. It shows his complete faith in the goodness and and truthfulness of God. Oh, that we might have such faith in the God we worship, to trust that whatever comes, comes from Him, and therefore it is good and profitable. It's easy to look at the times in which we live and to be pessimistic, to see things in our country going from bad to worse. Evil abounds and is celebrated We have wicked rulers at every level of government. It's easy to speculate about what the future may hold that will be bad news. Seven years of famine, worsening economy, growing inflation, overreaching legislatures and judiciaries, the ever-declining moral values in our society. But Joseph had complete confidence that even if the interpretation was bad news, it would be profitable. It would be an answer of peace because God was revealing something. And anytime God reveals something, we should pay attention. Throughout the chapter, we're repeatedly reminded that God is at work in these events. Look how Joseph introduces the interpretation in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. God is about to do this, the good and the evil, the prosperous years and the famine. It's repeated again in verse 28. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then again in verse 32, And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. What is being asserted here is not that God merely knew what was going to happen, but that he infallibly knew what was going to happen because he had determined that it would happen and he was actively bringing it to pass If we would suggest that God merely foreknew what would happen and was providing them a warning, that would be, in the words of John Calvin, to cast God down from his throne. He wouldn't be God if he's merely omniscient and not also omnipotent. Remember that question of evil, if God knows all things is altogether good and is all-powerful, then why doesn't he simply stop evil before it happens? Why didn't God stop the seven years of famine? He didn't stop them because it was his plan. He had determined 
to make these seven years of famine happen. They weren't going to happen apart from God's decree to make them occur. He planned, determined, willed, and created seven years of famine. And he did so for good purposes. Now, what were those purposes? Well, we can know a few of them from the biblical story. The famine served to move Israel to Egypt looking for food, just as God had told Abraham would happen. They would be enslaved in Egypt. A new Pharaoh would be hostile to Israel and their God, and then God would show his power to the whole world in the Exodus. Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And while Israel was in Egypt, the wickedness of the Canaanites was being completed so that God was ready to judge them and use Israel as his instrument of justice. But during the time of the Canaanites, the land was prepared for Israel. Cities were built, fields were cultivated, so that when Israel was brought to the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And Israel, as a nation, would serve God's purposes by bringing into the world the Messiah, the promised seed who would defeat the serpent and rescue us from the curse of sin and death. God had his plans from the beginning, plans to bless all the families of the earth, and seven years of famine served those good plans. So let us learn this lesson of faith from Joseph. Even when we can't see the end of the plans of God, we can rest assured that he has plans. Whatever is happening is happening because God has decreed for it to happen. Nothing is happening outside his good and perfect will. If we suffer evil, calamity, distress, persecution... It happens according to the good will of God. We can trust him in whatever may come. It may be for our sanctification. It may be for the good of someone else who sees us suffer well, trusting God through these circumstances. And even if we can discern the times in which we live and have some sense of of what is coming, we can trust that it's from God who is bringing it to pass for the sake of his good plans in the world and for the glory of his name. This sort of faith that trusts God with all things is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we gin up on our own. So let us pray that God would increase our faith and teach us to rest in his omnipotent goodness. Second, we notice Joseph's wisdom here in chapter 41. And much like we saw in chapter 40, it begins with humility. Note once again Joseph's answer in verse 16. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. As he did with the two officers in the previous chapter, so too here with Pharaoh, Joseph does not claim glory and praise for himself. He points towards God as the source of wisdom. He humbles himself in the sight of men in order to bring glory 
to his God. This is the first step towards true wisdom, the fear of the Lord that teaches us humility, ascribing nothing to ourselves but confessing that whatever is good, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is wise in us flows to us from the fountainhead of God's grace in Christ Jesus. When we seek praise for ourselves, we have turned away from wisdom and embraced folly. Joseph knew that he was utterly dependent on God for the wisdom to correctly interpret these dreams, whether they were his own dreams, the dreams of the butler and the, cup, uh, the baker, or now Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph was dependent upon God to provide the wisdom to interpret. He knew that God was revealing something in these dreams, but he also knew that the wisdom to discern the meaning of the dreams had to come from God alone. Pharaoh's already told him none of the wise men in, in the most powerful nation on earth could determine what these dreams meant. And as we think about Pharaoh's dreams, we might wonder why. They seem even more straightforward than the dreams of the officers in the previous chapter. Right? The Nile River. Think about the land of Egypt and the Nile River. The Nile River is the lifeblood of the land of Egypt. It provides needed water. When it floods and overflows its banks during flood season, it deposits rich soil throughout the flood plain where they're able to grow their crops. So when Pharaoh sees himself standing next to the river, it seems obvious that the dream has something to do with the life of the land of Egypt. He sees seven cows that are, are fine and fat, which would indicate prosperity. In the second dream, seven full heads on one stalk likewise indicates plentiful harvests. These are followed by seven ugly lean cows, and Pharaoh makes a point of their ugliness when he describes them to Joseph in verse 19. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. Seven ugly cows that devour the fat cows and are none the better for it. You wouldn't even know. They're just as ugly as they had been at the beginning. Seven withered and blighted heads that devour the good heads. Well, cows give birth more or less once a year, every 12 to 14 months. Wheat generally produces one harvest a year. It seems fairly obvious that if we're going to interpret the seven to mean something, it would be interpreted as years. Seven years of plenty and prosperity followed by seven years of blight and famine. It doesn't seem that difficult. Now, we have the benefit of already having been told what it means. But I also think that we can see from this that Egypt's wise men had their judgment clouded. This was part of God's plan, that they wouldn't be able to interpret the dream. It's kind of astounding, really, because even if they couldn't come up with a proper interpretation, we know from biblical history and our own experience that the wise men of the realm would have come up with something, even if it didn't turn out to be true. The fact that they didn't even offer an interpretation shows us that God was at work. God was at work to elevate Joseph to this position in the land of Pharaoh. 
He provided Joseph with the wisdom from above to give an interpretation that proved to be 100% accurate. As we think about our own moment in history, the wise men of our day, it appears obvious that their judgment is just as clouded. The truth evades them at every turn. Pick a topic, foreign policy, economics, sexual ethics and identity, law enforcement, mental health, it doesn't matter. It seems like our culture has lost its mind. Common sense has become quite rare. This really shouldn't be a surprise to us. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and and that wisdom that comes from God is what allows us to determine good and evil, a culture that has rejected the knowledge of God has no fear of the Lord before their eyes. It should come as no surprise to us that that culture would call evil good and good evil They've rejected the one source of wisdom and truth, the one standard by which to judge these things. Some common sense of good and evil remains because men are made in the image of God, but it's blurred, it's it's out of focus because of sin. And the further a culture moves away from biblical Christianity, the fuzzier things get. It becomes more likely that good and evil will blur together such that the cultural wise men will no longer be able to tell the difference between the two. That's what's happening in our culture right now. At one time, the general culture that America shared at least had some semblance of Christian teaching and thought about the nature of the world and the sin of mankind That's no longer the case. We can't assume that our neighbors think about the world in the same way that we do. They don't. Joseph found himself in a pagan culture that did not share his understanding of the world. They were polytheists, worshiping many gods. They even thought the Pharaoh himself was a god. But their gods obviously were not omniscient, not omnipotent, not omnibenevolent. And being cut off from the wisdom of the one true God, their judgment was clouded. They couldn't discern the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams, but Joseph could. And notice what Joseph does. He goes beyond interpreting the dreams and offers Pharaoh counsel about what ought to be done in response to the dreams. He comes up with a plan for how to administer the collection of the abundance that would come from the seven years of plenty so as to save enough for the seven lean years. This is the sort of discernment we talked about last week that is later displayed by the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Joseph had that sort of discernment to know what needed to be done in light of the revelation of God. Without that sort of discerning wisdom, what do you think would have happened? Seven years of abundance and plenty. I'll tell you what would have happened. It would have been squandered in luxury and indulgence. And then when the lean years came, that abundance would have been wasted and the land would have suffered mass starvation. But because Joseph had the wisdom to plan ahead Many people were saved in Egypt 
throughout the world, including Joseph's own family. This is a special kind of discernment that not everyone has. Joseph had it. The sons of Issachar had it. One or two of us may have it. I can think of one of us that I think has this sort of gift of discernment to know what ought to be done. We have a policy and procedure manual that is pretty much his work. It's a wisdom that comes from God and is used for the benefit of others. We need people with this sort of godly discernment to be helping to plan ahead for how we ought to lead our families, how we ought to lead our, this church in the coming years. One such person in our culture is a man named Rod Dreher. He's written a couple of books in the last few years concerning this topic. How ought the church to respond to the cultural moment we find ourselves in, which is increasingly hostile towards Christ and His people? In his most recent book, which is entitled Live Not by Lies, he recounts the stories of a number of people who lived under totalitarian, communist, and socialist regimes. At one point, he recounts the words of a Russian Christian who had spent many years in prison because of his faith. This man said that what Christianity offered in the face of totalitarianism was a reason to die, and therefore reason to live. This man said, quote, you can't simply be against everything bad. You have to be for something good. This isn't new advice. It's simply a call to remember the gospel, to remember the good thing that we are about, the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus. This is what we have to offer the world our fellow citizens, and our neighbors. The good news of salvation, the good news of freedom in Christ, of love in a world filled with hate, of hope in a world where the future seems dark. The gospel offers comfort to those who are suffering, to those who are scared, to those who see no way out of the cultural famine that we're heading into. The gospel gives people a reason to die and therefore a reason to hope. Because there is truth, real, objective truth, and His name is Jesus. Let us seek the wisdom that comes from God to lead our families, to lead the church, and to lead this nation well. Let us pray that God would raise up faithful, godly men with the discernment to know what Israel ought to do. Next, note Joseph's courage. As we noted last week, he takes action. He deflected the praise away from himself and towards God, but then he follows up with action. He's not afraid to tell the interpretation of the dreams. He has faith that God is doing something and it's better to know than to be ignorant of it. He has faith that it will be profitable because God is revealing it. That's a lesson that we could learn ourselves. It's profitable. It's profitable for our neighbors to hear the truth, the truth of the law, the truth of the sinfulness of sin, the truth of the coming judgment of God, and the truth of the gospel, of death and resurrection, of Christ, of forgiveness, of redemption by faith in His finished work. 
We must speak the truth in love and live not by lies. But again, Joseph goes beyond simply interpreting the dreams and has the courage to offer Pharaoh unsolicited advice. Joseph does this with humility. He he doesn't promote himself. He doesn't say, let Pharaoh put me in charge. No, he just simply says in verse 33, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph has a wisdom that comes from God that brings to his mind a plan on how to deal with what is coming. He shares that wisdom with Pharaoh without hesitation and without self-promotion. It's not enough to simply tell people that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice and that he rose again to victory over death. We have to exhort them to repent and believe. Without a call to repentance, the gospel isn't really good news. It's the call to repent and believe that makes the gospel personal. Paul told Timothy that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That is a wisdom that we can share with others, offer them the truth of God, of sin, of salvation, and then encourage them to repent and believe. Joseph was confident that God was at work. We can share that same confidence that the Holy Spirit is still at work today convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and that the Holy Spirit is the one who will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. With that same confidence that Joseph had, we can take action knowing that God is at work all around us. Joseph demonstrated godly wisdom and discernment to know good from evil and to know what needed to be done. He was dependent on God for that discernment. And finally, I want us to note how this narrative in chapter 41 draws our attention to some parallels between Joseph and Adam. Joseph humbled himself and relied completely on God to discern good and evil which reminds us of Adam in the garden before the fall when he was dependent upon God to tell him what was good and what was not. Adam was established as God's vice regent over creation and over the garden. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Joseph was likewise established as Pharaoh's vice regent over Egypt. Verse 40, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Adam was created in the image of God, reflecting his glory and imbued with authority. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. So also Pharaoh clothed Joseph in such a way as to remake him into the likeness of Pharaoh and give him authority. Verse 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. In the garden, God gave Adam a wife. 
The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So also Pharaoh gives a wife to Joseph in verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph was over all the land of Egypt. It seems obvious that we're meant to see a connection here between Joseph and Adam. In Psalm 8, we're told of the excellency of God, of his name, and of his works, and of the wonder that it is that God gave man authority over his creation. Now, Hebrews later applies this psalm to Christ, but the language that is used there is, is a fairly apt description of what Pharaoh did when he elevated Joseph to this position of authority in Egypt. Yet you created him to be just less than one divine. You gave him honor as a crown and made his glory shine. You made him ruler of the works created by your hand. You placed all things beneath his feet to be in his command. In his book, Better Than the Beginning, Reformed Baptist pastor Richard Barcelo says, Man was stationed on the earth as God's vice regent and as a prophet and priest. He was created morally upright with knowledge and righteousness as well as the law written on his heart. He was placed in the Garden of Eden to both cultivate and keep the first temple and to spread it throughout the earth. He was in covenant with God. Adam was a representative of all mankind. He could attain to God's rest provided that he obeyed, extending the culture of the Garden of Eden to the four corners of the earth. But he failed his vocation. Well, in Genesis 41, Joseph serves as a, a glimpse of what might have been had Adam not failed. A vice regent over the land, clothed with glory, stewarding God's provision for the good of his people. But like Adam, Joseph failed. He didn't convert all of Egypt to the worship of Yahweh. He didn't, he didn't spread that to the ends of the earth. In time, another Pharaoh will ascend the throne who will not remember Joseph or his God. But Joseph is more than just a glimpse of what might have been. He's a promise of what would be, of what God will shortly bring to pass. In giving us a glimpse of what Adam could have been, Joseph also gives us a preview of what Christ is. Christ clothed in righteousness and glory, given all authority by the Father, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. Christ, as the second Adam and the better Joseph, is the true and final vice regent of God over all things. He's the perfect image of God, has taken his throne, seated in his royal rest, his work of redemption being completed, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's Hebrews 1.3. And like Adam, God has given him a bride. Speaking of those who trust in him for salvation, the church, which is described as the bride of Christ, 
Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. But where Adam failed and where Joseph was only a glimpse, Christ completes the work. He subdues the hearts of men, builds his church, which is his body, the temple of the new covenant, spreading to the ends of the earth and enduring to the end of the age until at the last day he will take dominion over all things, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us in faith ask God for wisdom which is from above, that we might have the discernment and the courage to speak the truth in love, to grow up into all things, into him who is the head, that we might be mature in Christ as those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let's pray.